Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 331st episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that knows when to hold them and when to be the guys that pre-sold them. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host is Travis Allen, at Wizard Bumpin' on Twitter, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hello, everybody. Glad to be here again and looking forward to sharing some valuable information with all of you. Our show is produced by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to plan your specs, chat and discord and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. James, welcome back from vacation and uh, to our brief, brief reunion here. Thank you, thank you. We uh, just got back from 20 states in 20 days. I guess it, technically it was 21 because we had to divert into Montana to get around Yellowstone at one point. But we have definitely done a fairly whirlwind tour of the best of the American West, almost 9,000 miles driven in uh, just under three weeks. That is more driving than I would want to do, that's for sure. <laughs> Did some very cool stuff but... along the way, figured out where we might want to move. Should uh, should the U.S. ever become appealing for some reason? And I'm sure, uh, yeah, had a good time. <laughs> okay, that's now that's funny given our prior conversation yeah. here. <laughs> you're, look, you're looking to go north, and I might go south. Yeah, we just talked about an hour. I spent an hour talking about what it would look like to move into Canada, and you're like, "Yeah, we're looking at moving to the U.S." Oh, all right, sure. Well, in the remote work culture, the reason a Canadian might want to move to the U.S. U.S. is that if you could get in with a Canadian company that had offices in the U.S. or a U.S. company, more likely, that has offices in Canada and then get transferred, you'd end up getting paid in U.S. dollars. And unlike the U.S., Canada does not require that you give up your Canadian citizenship if you move elsewhere. And the um, so as a Canadian, you can basically go down to the U.S., do your career for a while, bank a bunch of money in U.S. dollars, which has like 25% premium back here, and then you could retire back in Canada, and after six months, you would get your healthcare back, your socialized healthcare, and that mm. makes working in the U.S. and later retiring in Canada fairly appealing. I see, I see. Uh, okay, well, we could do an entire podcast on this, but that's not what people came here to listen to us talk about. <laughs> yeah, MDG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering single, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at coolstuffinc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Travis, back on the hot seat, what is on the agenda this week? Well, this week uh, looks like things haven't changed too much. Uh, segment 1, the top the Metago, Medigo, oh, the, the MTGO Medigo, the MTGO Metagame Week Review. We've got a Modern and Pioneer Super Qualifier, one and one and two there, the day before July 4th, July 3rd. Segment two, our top paper movers, the cards that have moved the most in price this past week, along with some MTGO movers. Segment three, our cards to watch. We'll run through uh, some options we think you guys will want to keep your eyes on in the future. And segment four, the weekly topic, uh, we thought we'd take it a little more, I guess, hands-on personal this week. Uh, planning planning your, re- your retreat. Retreat's a... <laughs> uh, Interesting sounds, turn of phrase. 
yeah like <laughs> like you've given up like accepting defeat uh but you know if you're if you're planning on if you see yourself backing away from magic what does that need to look like and i have a little bit of firsthand experience here with that so hopefully i can provide some insight for anyone who finds their their attention waning at all um but let's start out here the mtgo metagame we can review uh modern here jumping right in with a familiar set of decks i noticed this when i w did the cast with cliff the last two weeks um these decks look a lot very familiar nothing seems terribly different than it did before i left crashing footfalls which has been a deck pretty much since the uh the release of Modern Horizons 2 in 1st and 8th here. This is the super qualifier, so a more important tournament than your average weekly challenge. Uh, or actually, I guess they're not even weekly challenges. They're usually multiple times per week. Uh, Blue-Red Murktide in 2nd, Amulet Titan in 3rd, Hammer Time in 4th, Green Tron in 5th, Living End in 6th, and Blue-Red Murktide again in 7th. The thing that jumps out to me here, and this has been discussed to death in the Discord, is that as I predicted when they banned Luris in Modern, it really hasn't had that much of an impact. And I'm convinced mm -hmm. that Luris decks on Magic Online had scary enough stats that from Wizards benchmarks it justified the ban. But I think in, a, in real terms, especially when you're looking at Paper Magic and how that's likely to unfold at the LGS level, I don't really think it makes that much of a difference. So I, I'm kind of... Am, at on this topic where i was then which is yeah whatever ban it don't ban it i don't think it's going to make <laughs> that much of a difference in the format and indeed it hasn't i think that the the you know the advent of freshly printed cards moving forward is much more likely to reshape the format as you know you get cards that get dropped air dropped in and inadvertently nullify the playability of one archetype or another um but right now this looks pretty much how it has for the last most better part of the last year it looks like a healthy strong format lots of good decks are viable there's probably 10 of them now that are likely to top eight on any given week and another 10 that might on any given sunday or saturday post up a solid result and this one looks you know just basically full of stalwarts yeah i i mean i still you know as far as Luris goes my position was always that the existence of Loris basically just put pressure on everything else and kind of prevented some of those other decks from being viable. Um, so it wasn't necessarily that you would see an explosion of alternative archetypes as soon as it was banned, but now there's room for other stuff to grow and exist where it couldn't before. In the same way that like if you have a an extremely powerful red deck, it just limits some of the other options because nothing else you know, you, you have to be able to address the red deck in in a particular capacity, and there are some archetypes that just cannot do that. Uh, and lures function in sort of a similar capacity. But I, I, I don't disagree that the advent of new cards in the format is likely to be, a, a at the moment, a more compelling change to the format than, than most other things. But, I mean, part of that is just the way Wizards has gone about printing cards in Modern Horizons Modern Horizons 2. They are not there to mess around. Those sets, you know, Modern Horizons 2 kind of, or Double Masters, those sets really make some changes. They, they're they're like, we're gonna, if we're going if we're going to make these sets here, we're going to make sure they have an impact. There's something closing in on 30 cards from MH2 that have top 8 in Modern. 
but yeah that's that's uh that's a lot that's more than pretty much any other set right i have to imagine i think it is the um see the interesting thing is that you don't see as much death shadow lately although it has top aided in the last couple months since the ban um but you still see plenty of hammer time and those were really the two lurus decks that that counted um, Blue Red Murktide didn't care because they didn't run it. Crashing Footfalls doesn't didn't run it. Amulet Titan, Tron, Living End, none of these none of these decks ran Lurus, so that you know that's why they're still front and center. But you know, Hammer Time is still in the mix week in, week out. So did you weaken Hammer Time? Yeah, by exactly that one free sideboard slot that you pay three to put into your hand. Um, but the deck was strong enough that it continues to to roll forward. So I'm I'm of the opinion that the modern ban list could probably unban five or six cards now, including Lurus, and just and sh- attempt to shake things up that way. If if it was me ma- making the calls, I would do that for a few months just to see what happened, and then and then roll back the other direction. Everybody's got these cards sitting around doing nothing anyway. You may as well give them a shot, to, chance to play them. Yeah, I saw some other similar comments to that effect that said uh, the modern ban list feels outdated and they should unban a lot of that stuff. Or at least I think th- I think they could. They, there's nothing wrong with going with an experimental tournament or an experimental period, um, and you could you could do it on Magic Online for a month. You know, it's a it, it would actually bring some attention in and probably generate some revenue inside Magic Online to experiment with that, and then at the end of it have you know some pros write up some articles talking about the results and then make a call on where to go from there yeah i mean they definitely could get away with that and if you're doing it on moto you're saving people the economic punishment of like buying cards that they're only going to play with once type of thing might get on might not get on ban whatever uh they could even run like no ban list or, or modified ban list modern with like um phantom cards essentially right like if they wanted to do a limited run yeah like okay we're gonna run this for two months and you have access to all the cards in the format but you, like you, you don't get to keep them type of thing yeah they have options uh that would assume that they're really eager to truly try and cultivate the format and pare down the ban list i i don't think they care that much i think it's just easier to leave all that stuff on the ban list yep. um but I, I think the slickest way to do it would be to make the banned cards phantom but all the other cards normal that way. Yeah. That way you don't yeah. lose uh, people buying and selling modern cards during that period. In fact, it increases the velocity of all of that, but there's no mm-hmm. harm, no foul on the banned cards. Yeah. That's probably the right idea to do it. Now, on the other hand, over in the pioneer super qualifier, Ooh, spice Our red, white prowess in first and seventh in about the most budget, list you could possibly imagine this is four favorite hoplite four illuminator virtuoso out of strixhaven four monastery swift spear which is now a common as of double masters two two soul scar mage four tenth district legionnaire uh four ancestral anger four homestead courage these are all penny cards four defiant strike four gods willing two invigorated rampage four reckless rage one sejiri shelter and then 19 red white lands this is basically like the um, the heroic deck from Standard that you and I have talked about before that I think we both mm-hmm. dabbled in. It's not a lot different. This is very similar to that deck. And to see it take down a Pioneer tournament is pretty cool. 
The only card in here that's even remotely worth specking on as far as I can see would be something like Inspiring Vantage, which indeed shows up on our top paper movers this week and is going to give people some outs on you know rares that they rare lands that have been kind of stuck that they may have opened during the Kaladesh period. Yeah, I mean decks like this are usually have very little action because they're so full commons and uncommons and then you have like one rare maybe that that has some weight to it. Um, but it's you know if it's by the time you're looking at it it's probably already not worth specking on especially because it's only for one deck uh so yeah i would agree with you this is the type of deck you kind of look at and you go yep look at that those sure are cards uh but there's not a lot of work i can do here i mean maybe needle verge pathways too right those are a possibility but i don't i'm not interested in trying to make that work especially if you don't know if this is a flash in the pan or not even if it's not like is that you know is this one deck enough to move the needle considerably on on those? I'm willing to bet not. I do like that this is a format where there's a $50 deck. This is probably 120 or something. A cheap deck. This is it. That can take down a tournament. It's good to have that option available in any given format. Uh, none of those top eight modern super qualifier decks are in that basket by any means so you know this is good this is one of the reasons pioneer should exist uh, for the people that can't quite pull together a modern deck now in second and third in the pioneer super qualifier you had blue red arc light that was also in eighth although that version was a little different than the first two you have blue white control in fourth you have the black red mid-range deck that i've sold a lot of cards uh out to lately croxes and kalitas's and so forth coco spirits which is basically just blue white spirits with four collected company in sixth and then the the second copy of the Red White Prowess deck in 7th looks pretty good. They've, they've had some bans in Pioneer recently, and the result is a slightly different fo- version of the format, and the Prowess deck being the most notable addition. So yeah, looking pretty decent. That is nifty. I'm glad to see that. Uh, I mean, I would expect to see some real, hopefully some more development in this format now that people are back at card stores and playing a little bit more, and the announcement about you know, Pioneer being in these um, other events or uh, part of the, whatever it's called. What, what, P- Pioneer in some paper format. What, they're not GPs, whatever they're called now, Magic Fest or something. Yeah. So uh, I, it's, it's nice to see that the, the format's moving forward because it, it, it always looked interesting and I wanted to see more of it. Uh, footnote from my travels. I did put, try to poke my head into whatever stores I could, I could find across uh, the Western U.S., and certain by far the only one really worth talking about is mox boarding house and the one both in seattle and in portland owned by card kingdom whoa boy have they nailed that formula stunning interiors huge selections of board games they don't have singles on the floor which is which was a little odd to me but you basically order online and they bring them down from the warehouse uh which i think has to uh restrict the velocity of impulse purchase but you know that's that's a side topic uh it didn't seem like they were doing too badly because they've got a gorgeous bar set up with tons of stuff on tap uh and spirits and so forth and then huge lovely play spaces with tons of uh natural light coming in very very impressive setup in both cases I have good, heard good things about it. I have never uh, made it out there to take a look, but um, I know that it is one of the stores that seems to have figured out how to how to do it right. Uh, and I, I think the reason you probably don't see more stores follow that formula is that 
it's expensive, right? Like that's, you know, so many people who started card store are like, oh, I'm going to take my personal magic collection and my friend's personal magic collection and put them in some glass cases in a hole in the wall and turn it into a card store. But Mox Boarding House is set up as like, no, this is a business, right? Like this is a, you know, a, it's $800,000 maybe to get off the ground and moving type of thing. Um, yeah. And just a lot of people who open magic stores <clears throat> are not coming in with that type of capital. In Toronto, we have some really great board game bars that are similar but not quite as nice. Um, we have a bunch of solid magic play spaces that are magic dedicated uh, between face-to-face games and 401 games and a couple of others. And then we we have uh, like a place called Stormcrow Manor, which is like a huge old Victorian home that they put a bunch of money in. Like they bought a whole bunch of My movie, friends. movie props and stuff and put them in there. We're, ju- we're just there like last week or the weekend before, and uh, I know that they're doing a s- summer in July or Halloween in July thing that a couple of my friends want to go to. Yeah. Because they like that idea. I have never been. We were we were planning a trip to Toronto to do uh, Stormcrow and the Renaissance Fair and kind of have a good time of it. And we were going to go in spring of 2020. We were planning it that summer, that winter. Yeah. Yeah, Stormcrow is cool. They do like a thing like you get a Darth Vader, a $15 Darth Vader drink. And when they bring it out, they play they play the Imperial March uh, for <laughs> Vader. And somebody comes out and presents it to you and bows to you or whatever. Um, so, yeah, there's fun stuff. But, yeah, Mox and Boarding House, very, very cool. Uh, moving on to top paper movers of the week. Mausoleum Wanderer foils out of Eldritch Moon, 10 to 16. That's 60% gains on the back of that Bant Spirits deck and Pioneer. You got Thorn of Amethyst, the original foils from Lorwyn, 130 to 210. These are basically sold out on TCG Player. Um, lowest posted copy, only caught posted copy there in near mint is about $700. So what's the real price on this? Hard to say, but it dodged a reprint in Double Masters, which certainly didn't hurt. Uh, we've got Scourge of Valkus uh, out of M14, foils from 12 to 20. 67% gains on the back of all the dragon decks that are getting built lately. Um, given that that was one of the archetypes that uh, gained the most from the otherwise disappointing Command of Legends 2. Then we've got Fires of Invention foil, foil extended art. I know for a fact this was a slow-moving gainer out of my on-cast picks from many moons ago, at least two or three years ago. Uh, and here we have the foil extended arts that got down to under $10, going from 10 to 17 presumably on the back of use in Pioneer. And then we've got Furcag, Cunning Instigator Extended Arts, out of Commander <laughs> Legends 2 Collector Booster Boxes, going from 3 to 525. That's just 225 gains. 75% though, again, on the back of all these dragon decks getting built. Hard to make money on that as a spec, but maybe you opened some of these in your disappointing CMR2 boxes and you want to unload them uh, as these climb a little further up the curve to recoup some of your cash. Combat Celebrant Foils, I've sold several of these, including some signed copies uh, this spring, so I'm not tremendously surprised to see the foils going from 27 to 48 for 78% gains. Uh, This is on the back of, there's at least five or six different commanders and or strategies in EDH now where you're looking to take extra turns. Everything from Ishin to a variety of, there's at least three or four red commanders that take like generate extra turns and so of course you want to have a uh, ability to 
lean into that theme as much as you can and combat celebrant is a you know five or six year old foil mythic so uh that has never had a reprint yeah there uh we we glossed over it but i just wanted to comment that that dragon that furkrag kind of instigator you just you read the words on the paper and you're like, yeah, okay. Like this is just a this is just some name, a fantasy name. And then you say the words for Greg out loud, and you're like, oh, that's a, <laughs> that looks a lot better on paper than it sounds in your ear. That was my <laughs> takeaway from that. I mean, they're they're running out of syllables to use on these cards. Eighty thousand cards into the game or whatever. Um, yeah, they're uh, gonna have to start just just making crap up at this point, right? Now I know you and you and Cliff had a chat about how Ledger Shredder. Uh, surprise people and what is you know one of the best performing specs out of streets of new capenna and a lot of people didn't see it coming cliff and i didn't cover it uh didn't think much of it like i think i said something during the set review like oh yeah that's like one of the better looters printed we'll see some play in edh did not at all predict that it was going to be a force to be reckoned with as a four of and standard pioneer modern sometimes back to legacy uh and yet here we are now, alongside that, one of the other cards that was underestimated, I think, was Unlicensed Hearse, um, which is a vehicle that takes only two cards out of a graveyard per uh, tap, so once you know per turn cycle for the most part. But when you eventually turn it into a creature, its power and toughness are equal to the number of cards that it has removed. During the set review for that card, I said, well, you know, if you're in Modern or something and you're trying to get rid of graveyards against Living End or something, this is just going to be too slow. And yet, especially in Pioneer and Standard, where they don't have access to all the options you have in Modern, it has been doing a lot of work. So both Foil Extended Arts going from 16 to 30 and Extended Arts going from 8 to 15, although that was over the last three weeks, not the last week, um, showing almost 90% gains. And I would imagine that both the EA and the Foil Extended Art have room to, to grow. Uh, over the next three to six months, uh, given where this card is at in terms of play pattern. Yeah, the uh, the card is definitely potent. Um, I had this kind of stop and look at it when we talked about it with Cliff. Uh, I really patted myself on the back in that Ledger Shredder bet too, didn't I? Um, it is it, it is a bit slow for Graveyard Hate, but combined with other tools that you're using in your deck to disrupt your opponent's plan if you can do anything else to interact with them unlicensed services applying just enough pressure that they probably can't execute and then at the same time you're also building this major threat um so it's kind of doing double duty it's not it's not a 100 graveyard hate but it's probably what like 80 80 to 90 percent and then it also turns into a card that can win you the game which is always a problem with some of the sideboard cards where like if you just draw a little bit too much graveyard hate, then you just do nothing, and and then suddenly you actually have a game on your hands. So I I, I can respect why it's playable. I I have to in both Ledger Shutter and Unlicensed Hearse case, I kind of look at this and go, I don't think it would be reasonable to have expected either of them to get as expensive as they were because it would just it's so I feel like it would be so hard to gauge the actual demand for competitive paper cards in this environment. Like I just I wouldn't know. You know, like I, I would have had trouble figuring out what price they were going to land at in 2013. I probably would have been quite good at that. But in 2022, I don't know. I, I don't think any, any of us on team would have guessed that regular unlicensed hearse as a rare out of a standard set that is essentially a anti graveyard hate card would be $13. 
in its regular version. Yeah. Like that's yep. that that's an impressive number. Would never have guessed. Um, yep. Moving along, we've got Orb of Dragon Kind out of uh, Adventures of the Forgotten Realms from last summer. Dollar twenty-five to two fifty. That's hundred percent gains on the back of those dragon decks. Lanowar Wastes out of Apocalypse, original printing of the Painland, nine to eighteen. There's nothing special going on here other than it's been a long time that people have been adding these DDH decks, and eventually the original printings were gonna jump up to the next plateau. And it looks like that's what's happening here. And then the last card on the list is Hivis of the Scale, a reserved list dragon-related card from Mirage that went from 9 to 18 itself for 100% gains, uh, again, on the back of demand for dragon decks. Those dragon decks, man, they have certainly been popular the last couple weeks. A lot of cool dragons uh, in Commander Legends, too. Miriam did strike me as a pretty cool card. I'm going to call it Miriam. I don't know if that's accurate. But I did like that card. I saw that was the the top commander lately. Uh, and I like that it does something interesting. Where did it go? Miriam Sentinel Worm. Three teamer, six, six, flying, ward two, dragon spirit. Whenever another non-token dragon enters the battlefield under your control, create a token that's a copy of it, except the token isn't legendary. One of the reasons Hivas of the Scale wasn't more popular in the past was because the uh, dragon that it put into play was a temporary thing. But with Miriam and then Hivis, you get to put, you get the copy and you keep the copy. So hence the renewed interest. Yeah, so I'm seeing Miriam and the Ur-Dragon as one and two. So the dragon decks, having all these cards moving is no big surprise. Prosper's been going strong in, in the top five pretty much since its release last summer. Atraxa jumped back up because it got a whole bunch of toys to play with recently and is in fourth again and then yuriko is in fifth yeah i saw that they printed this rug dragon and it's kind of a nifty ability and i like it's a dragon commander that opens you up in the blue but it's not a five color option um and it does a, a cool thing <laughs> like the, the the copying your dragons is pretty nifty so Oh, just just an, an interesting card. I think one um, of the things that's probably underestimated about Miriam is that Ward 2 is just good. Because yeah. one of the reasons the tax taxation for profit cards are so popular in Commander, your Smothering Ties and your Ristic Studies and so forth, is because players don't evaluate that cost well. People hate to pay those costs, so they rarely do, and often it's a mistake. And Ward 2 has the same kind of thing going on. And if you have a Rhystic Study out and Miriam and a couple of other things that tax, like, say, a propaganda, nobody wants to do anything to you because it's just too too annoying to their their turn plans to, to get into all that. So they're just going to skip you and go to somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, just a little bit of Ward is is good it's uh they're only going to remove it if it's the absolute worst thing at the table yep they can't just leave a single planes up to path it at the end of turn or during combat or whatever they got to leave three mana up and that just messes up the whole turn mm-hmm. all right mm-hmm. so moving on over to top magic online movers of the week we've got fable of the mirror breaker out of uh, neon dynasty going 12.23 ticks to 19.09 ticks that's a uh, 56% change deep standard pioneer play there fable again one of these cards that was uh spotted as being good but wasn't people didn't quite realize how good it was um and the fact that it, it's good in both constructed and edh and generates starts generating advantages almost immediately but not to the extent that people especially in edh feel the need to target it 
immediately uh, is is good. This is just an all around good card. Den of the Bugbear similarly is a great land that does a Goblin Rabble Master impression uh, on a land, uh, which is a pretty solid place to be with your red aggro land. Hence why it's thirty gone from 33 tickets to almost 53 tickets for a Magic Online rare. So if you need to get your play set of these for Magic Online, that's $200 roughly that you got to spend. Uh, again, that's on the back of mostly deep standard and pioneer play, although it does show up in modern here and there. Uh, Grief out of Modern Horizons 2, six tickets to ten tickets. Uh, mostly played, I think, in modern in Living Index, uh, although there are some uh, tricolor uh, Yorion brews floating around and a few other th places where people have tried to make Grief work. Overall, it sees modern legacy vintage play. And then, of course, Inspiring Vantage we flagged as the red-white prowess deck and Pioneer being like the only rare that might make you money. And indeed, on Magic Online, it has going from six tickets to ten tickets. So if you drafted during the Kaladesh era, you might have some of these sitting around that you want to out. Well, the outing is good. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, okay, so the cards to watch here, you've got no shortage of options for us this week. Uh, why don't you get us started, James? I had plenty of time to be thinking while I was on those <laughs> six to ten <laughs> hour road trips per day. Uh, my, yeah. my, we got unlimited data and we used it, boy. So, <laughs> Archivist of Ogma is pretty much the top rare out of Commander Legends Battle for Baldur's Gate. It is currently available at about twelve or thirteen dollars, but it's been sliding ever since it peaked around eighteen early in the release process. I suspect this card is going to end up down around ten dollars sooner or later. There's a lot of pressure uh, via eyeballs on Double Masters 2022 stuff coming up, and I'm seeing copies of this card undercut. Uh, existing price points on TCG Player pretty frequently. So I think if you're going to get in on this in the $10 to $12 range, you're probably going to get an exit down the road closer to $20. Uh, it's a very good card. When it, It's a 2-2 two -two for one and a white, halfling cleric with flash. Whenever an opponent searches their library, you gain one life and draw a card. So, of course, your opponent is going to search... Uh, via fetch land for the first time in the game, you're going to flash this in and immediately gain benefit. And then it's just never going to be the kind of card that people are going to waste resources to target. It can get caught up in a Wrath of God, for instance, but it's very unlikely to be the biggest threat at the table that it's going to draw point removal. And uh, for those reasons, and given its stats so far on EDH Rec, where it's posting up Something in the neighborhood of 7,600 decks, 10% of all white decks running it so far. Those are very, very good numbers. The only other cards that are even close are the aforementioned Deep Gnome Terramancer at, uh, from the Party Time deck at 4,600. 7,200 decks are running Ancient Copper Dragon. You've got Black Market Connections, the other Party Time card in 6,400 decks, and then Ancient Silver Dragon at 4,800. It's just incrementally generating value, which is a common theme amongst the best of the white cards that have been targeted for EDH over the last five years. Archivist is selling at a brisk pace. CK currently covers its existing price tag on TCG Player via buy list credit out. 
So you can get these for about $14 on TCG Player right now. CK has you covered at about that. Okay, yeah, I did notice this card popped up right away, um, both in some TCG Player sales lists and on uh, white, you know, some white car- popular white cards lately. I had the same thought. I'm like, oh, this is great. You put this down on turn two. People are cracking fetches and tutoring lands, and uh, no one is ever going to bother to kill this on their own, and it's going to draw you a million cards, and they gave White some very powerful card draw here. Card is really good. Seems like it could be playable in Pioneer, frankly. Well, maybe not Pioneer, right, because there's no fetches, but they're probably playable in Modern. Not legal in either, but... Right, 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 right. Were it were were it legal and modern when it get played, it's like yeah, I could possibly see it. Um, yeah, I mean, a pricey point to buy in at. But if you look at a lot of the other commander only cards that I think had wider release patterns than this does, um, those free spells, flawless maneuver and deflecting SWAT and fierce guardianship. The regular copy, is, there is more in stock. So there's 120 listings on TCG Player, and there is one big wall there, really, really big. It's uh, 198 copies from Tarkin's cards. So I don't know if that's Tark from over at QS or what, but 200 copies that need to get burned through just near $17. Thing is, if you look at how many are selling, we just look at sales data for today, and we're looking at a few pages like you're talking 20 30 40 copies a day selling of this card mm-hmm. yeah yeah so I, I i'm not surprised by that at all and you know if we're talking about just the the normal version of it um you know with sales numbers like that and that type of popularity a 200 inventory to burn through doesn't really concern me all that much because it seems like you're gonna get through that in a relatively quick time frame yeah, and just because someone has 120 of them listed for sale at $17, it doesn't mean he's going to sell all 170 of them at that price point before he changes the price. Alrighty, what's your first selection of the week? Uh, I had to double check because I thought we had talked about this in the past, but I don't see it on this spreadsheet. So if we have talked about it, it's been over a year since we did. Uh, but I'm looking at Glasspool Mimic, which caught my eye as a recent a very popular card, even just in the last month. Glasspool Mimic is the flip card from Zendikar Rising. This is uh, on the front half. It's a uh, three mana Mimic, uh, like a Phantasmal Image type of card. But then on the back side, it's the land um, that enters the battlefield tapped, but it's in uh, taps for blue. So in your opener, it's a land. And then later on, it's a, a clone. And, you know, if you're playing any sort of deck with tricky bounce lands to your hand type effects you can play it as a land in the early game and then later on return it to your hand and play it as a creature as necessary but uh as a, as a side side question here for you glass mimic is showing in thirty three thousand decks which is a lot and several of the cards i've looked at have had some really impressive deck numbers so did edh rec do something that changed that what they're pulling in terms of decks You'd have to re- redirect that to Jason because I know that they sporadically do cleanup of their data. Sometimes they lose a source. Sometimes they add a source. Sometimes they reorganize or change how they handle their code. So I'm not aware of anything in the last you know few months um, where something specific has changed. But are you asking because you feel like the price of the card doesn't line up with its pl- like 
the declared play pattern? I'm asking because uh, it seems like that's way more cards, way more decks than I would expect. Like, I'm looking at these and I'm going, okay, why is there... Um, it seems like this, that like Glass Pool Mimic, might have been at like seven or eight thousand, and then they added some new data source, and it jumped up to thirty thousand. Because over and over, I'm looking at cards that are showing up in more decks than I would have expected them to by a large margin. So it just seems like they added a new data source, essentially. So like the number one card at a Zendikar Rising on EDH Rec is Feed the Swarm at one hundred and five thousand decks, then Balagad Recovery at seventy nine thousand, Scute Swarm at sixty two thousand, which is about where Balakad Awakening is also at. Down and Glasspool Mimic is like in the top twelve, no tops. It's the fifteenth most played card at thirty-two thousand. So it looks it looks like a reasonable number. I mean, like when you and I were recording though, back when I was on the show regularly. So let's rewind to like the end of last year. If we pulled up an EDH, if we pulled up a card in EDH rack and it was clocking in at ten to twelve thousand decks, that was a that was a pretty solid number. Like that was that was good because for a while, like our lowest, the lowest range that we kind of looked at was I in my head was like three to four thousand. We occasionally talked about cards that were in fewer decks than that, but that was three to four thousand was like the minimum for like this is this is a fine card that will have some on ongoing demand. Then it kind of moved up over time and we got up into the like the seven or eight thousand range. But like thirteen, fifteen thousand was really good. And now I'm like thirty thousand, thirty thousand, twenty eight thousand, thirty five thousand. I'm like, whoa, whoa, they like they it just feels like something changed here. Because all the either that or uh, like they doubled the number of playing people playing EDH in the last year. I don't know. I haven't. I mean, Zenega Rising was a few years back now, so these numbers look about right for that. If we look at something like cards from a set from the last year, so if we look at say Adventures in the Forgotten Realms from last summer, for instance, and check out their top cards, their tops are you know thirty to forty thousand decks as well. Um, but if we look at street, a lot for one but if we year. look at but i mean not if a commander is continuing to grow b you might be right they may have added a source um which is why i don't care too much about the absolute numbers as opposed to the relative numbers that has always been the correct way to look at these edh rec stats is like how where does it rank in the top cards from that set that have all been put they were all came out at the same time and all had similar availability and then how does it rank versus cards that, uh, you know, a year later, how does it rank versus the cards that were a year old when it first came out? And it's worth keeping notes on that kind of thing because, you know, if they don't, if EDH Rec doesn't shake things up by adding a source or whatever that could throw the stats off, then those can be useful comparisons to make. Um, all, all, that being, all that being said, Glasspool Mimic makes sense as a card this popular i mean it's it's broadly applicable it doesn't it's not specific to any one given theme it's just a good card yeah i mean i i semi agree with your point about the relative component like that is true but like i would rather have an artifact that's in a hundred thousand decks that's only in one percent versus you know a tricolor card that's in 40 percent of decks but is only in six thousand yeah, yeah, yeah for sure you know for I mean? sure um, but yeah, you and I are roughly on the same page. I think we agree here. So the bottom line is you're, you're proposing glass pool, mimic Zendikar rising extended arts to go six to 50. Yes. Extended art foils. They look good. Uh, there's no way you're going to see this again anytime soon outside of like the very, 
odd occurrences of them putting it in secret layer or whatever, which all the same disclaimers is normal. Uh, probably not going back to Zendikar anytime soon. I, either I would assume, but 33,000 decks. They're currently six bucks for the extended art foils. It's a very popular blue card, very high list, even in the top, very high utility, even in the last month. Um, you're especially not getting a, a borderless reprint anytime soon. And I think this is a very tantalizing price point because if someone's going to TCG player to buy a glass pool mimic, six bucks for the, the best foil copy is very easy to buy, right? You're like, I need a glass pool mimic. Oh, it's like I can spend 80 cents or whatever and get the most basic one, but it's only a couple bucks to get the cool one. So I'm just going to get that when they're $40. It's a, you know, it's a different calculation for people, but that's, that's low enough to be sort of impulsy. Um, so you can buy them at that price point. You sell through a bit of an inventory. I think there are, there's 65 vendors. Nobody's too deep on them. Um, I don't, yeah, I, I see like a seven. You have to get pretty far down the list before. I don't, yeah, I, in, even in the first 50 listings, I don't think anyone has more than seven. Um, so you're and you're paying about six bucks. You'll probably pay six fifty once you buy clean out the lowest the lowest options there. But <clears throat> relative a, a shallowish inventory, a card that's showing to be very popular, um, a, ta a good price point there for people who want an impulse purchase. And I think probably six to 12 months, but you know, to be conservative over a year, uh, we'll see you probably a solid, I would assume triple, close to triple up on this. The easiest comparison here is to look at Thieving Skydiver, Foil Extended Arts, which is one of my pet cards. It's from the same set, it's in the same color, it's just as easily splashable. It's also just as easily slid into any given blue deck. They have almost exactly the same inventory on TCG Player, uh, Skydiver has 63 listings near Mint Foil Extended Art. Uh, Glasspool's at 64. They're both in that 5 to $6 range currently. I've bought up tons of Thieving Skydivers in the 3 to $4 range at their lows. And according to EDH Rec, Mimic is in 50% more decks again than Skydiver, like 32,000 versus 22,000. So if I argued for Skydiver, I can't very well argue against Mimic, given all of that. <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly got thought we had talked about this uh, and I was kind of I had to do a couple different searches on the sheet of different spellings just to make sure, you know, it didn't show up with a space between glass and pool or something. But if we did, it was, you know, it was prior to episode uh, what's at the bottom of the spreadsheet 263, which was in March of last year. So uh, it's been a while if we have. All right. Uh, I got a, a sweet little uh side choice here that pe might have been off people's radar wrathful dragon is doing pretty well because of all the dragon decks in terms of play patterns on edh rec uh it is somewhere at let's see it's at 3700 decks reported four percent of all red decks which puts it top 16 for the set and this is the 5-5 five, five for 5 flying red dragon. Whenever a dragon you control is dealt damage, it deals that much damage to any target that isn't a dragon. So if you block it or it blocks your thing, something else is going to die. So it's got a solid rattlesnake effect. Um, makes a lot of your any of your spells that deal damage look much worse. And you're going to have to deal with it before you deal with the other dragons. This card has a pre-release version. That pre-release version is available for $3.00. Card Kingdom buy list already covers that play at that price, and given how the Dragon decks are doing, with both Miriam and the Ur Dragon being very popular this year, 
I could easily see this pre-release card going from three to ten dollars and ending up being six or seven on CK's buy list within six to twelve months, giving you an easy out. CK always pays a premium for, or often pays a premium for pre-release versions of cards. They just seem to circulate into buy lists uh, less often, and if you're going to go after a Wrathful Dragon version. You could take a look at the regulars, you could take a look at the foil extended arts, but I think this pre-release is going to be hard to miss on given that you've got buy list coverage on your play. Yeah, I mean, as is as is always the case, if you're covered on a buy list here, uh, either stateside or if you are buying in Europe at below uh, buy list prices, it's hard to argue against it. Um, that seems pretty solid. I'm I, I will say that I am a touch skeptical of a $10 price point, but I think that like probably five to seven is, is very plausible. It seems to be where a lot of dragons kind of end up that are pop, reasonably popular. Maybe Wrathful Dragon is just, is just more popular than I'm get, realizing or giving it credit for at the start, in which case it could end up at 15. Um, so, but either way you're winning on any of those numbers. So there's only 29 listings for the pre-release and obviously pre-releases are kind of like secret layers in the sense that they're time limited. Like if you didn't buy pre-release kit from the CMR2 release, then you're never going to open one of these because that's the only place to get them. And people moved on from that set very quickly and on to Double Masters 2. So if we look at regular copies of the card, for instance, they... The regular foils go for about the same, but there's 51 listings as opposed to the 29 for pre-release. And given that pre-release premium that CK offers, I just have a good feeling about this one. Yeah, I mean, I I guess I would, I'm inclined, I don't mean to show up for one episode and then be a dick about this. Uh, <laughs> Do your thing. If I, I'm, I'm inclined to look at this and go, okay, well, again, it's, it's Bilas back, so like it seems fine no matter mm-hmm. what. But... There's so many, um, there's a, a pretty solid availability of the just the normal copies, both at foil and non-foil. I, I, I would expect a lot of players coming to market to buy the non-borderless copy are basically just going to pick the cheapest of any of the three, the promo, the normal copy, or the normal foil copy. So I don't see it getting too far ahead of the normal one, which is which is part of why I think the that a, a price point of like seven to you know five to eight is probably a little more reasonable than like fifteen, just because it's, I don't I don't I don't think the promo is competing just against a promo. I think it's competing against all three versions. The extended art foil is a slightly different story. Uh, but that's you know because that's that's like four dollars, so you're not even that much more money, and now you've got the the quote unquote best version. Now you've still got eighty vendors over there, um, so no shortage of copies on that either. But it doesn't look like anyone's too deep, and actually that's not even near mint. If I go to near mint, you're at sixty five. Um, I mean, for a dollar more, I I feel like the extended art foils are more appealing to me. But I'm not going to fault anyone for any of these choices because if it's a it's a play dragon, then the price is going to move regardless. Yeah, so foil extended art version of this card is currently going for about four dollars and sixty-five listings. So pre-release is at least half the number of TCG listings. I fully agree with you that the average player isn't necessarily at all interested in the pre-release. Pre-release copies only matter to collectors of pre-release copies and Card Kingdom. So this is absolutely targeted as a Card Kingdom buy list 
uh, play. And if that fails, you're probably not going to get there. Um, so all that being said, what's your next choice? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I have no problem with that, that strategy. Um, my other pick this week, and I will say I had to look at, I had to look at so many stupid cards because I kept finding choices and I'm like, oh, this looks good. And then I'm like, oh, one of us picked it like nine weeks ago, like, or you're, you know, 20 weeks ago or whatever. I'm like, damn it. I keep finding all the same cards that I already looked at. But the uh, the other one that kind of caught my attention, and I, I wouldn't have expected to, to pick this, but um, I, I was conv- I com- convinced myself, I think, which is Unbreakable Formation out of the Secret Layer. This is the, and I'm looking specifically at the Secret Layer version, which I'm, pre- and I'm pretty sure this is the D&D Secret yeah. Layer, right? Um so unspeakable formation is the three mana instant creatures you control are indestructible. And if you cast it during your main phase, uh, they all get one, one and gain vigilance the cards really popular. It's in 35,000 EDH rec decks, 6% of white decks since it was released. So another, you know, 30,000 deck card. It's a lot of copies. Um, there's a bunch of versions, the bunch of copies, a bunch of versions of unbreakable formation, but they're all the same thing. Uh, they're all just sort of your your basic modern border cop, uh, type of card and not much else going on there. Uh, with the exception of the Secret Layer one, it is a full art card. Uh, it's got sort of this semi-dynamic art where this chick is reflecting some spells. Now, I, don't part- I did not care about the Dungeons & Dragons cartoon. This doesn't speak to me at all. But when I look at the array of Unbreakable Formation options on the market, the only other artwork is very boring and in a very boring frame. So the appeal here is that the Secret Layer Borderless version has a not just a slightly better artwork, but a much better border. I love the Borderless cards pretty much across the board. Um, but it's three dollars. It's you. There's someone at the bottom at the bottom barrel here is two dollars and thirty cents, and he has twenty six copies. Uh, whereas all of the other Unbreakable Formations, you'll pay like I mean, it looks like the cheapest copy is like thirty five or forty cents. So like it's so cheap that again, why would you like if you're gonna go buy a copy of this, you can pay thirty five cents, fifty cents for the ugliest one possible, or you can pay two fifty and get a one that looks kind of cool, and well, the first guy on this list has 26 copies. There's only 28 vendors. Uh, and there's a couple extra copies floating around here. Out of 28 vendors, I would guess there's probably 60-ish copies uh, total list on TCG player. I do think that there's an interesting factor here in the way that secret layers get sold because, I, I mean, I would think, I think we're probably in agreement that a lot of secret layers, especially the ones that are a little bit off the the main line are bought primarily by speculators. So there might be an inventory hiding out there that's just not listed on TCG player, which I can totally believe. But what catches my attention with this is there's, I don't know, I'm gonna say like 60 to 70-ish copies of the non-foils, but there's more foils. Uh, There's 40 vendors versus 28. And I don't have to scroll very far before somebody has 70 copies. So like one guy has as many foil copies as I think there are entirely of the non-foils. And there's a 10 copies and 30 copies. So there's actually a much deeper inventory of foils than non-foils. Um, and we know that foils can be a little divisive anyways. Uh, so with the 
the seemingly shallowish inventory of these non-foil borderless unspeakable unbreakable formations and how popular the card is in general and how bad the options are for all the other versions i like buying the non-foil borderless copies here at two bucks and change and i think you know they're not going to be 25 dollars <throat> but at 230 if you fl if this gets up to like eight bucks right that's a really good turnaround and they're cheap enough that you can buy a decent hunk of them and then you know if they get to seven or eight and you buy list them for five like there you go that's how you can turn a good chunk of these into um a decent little profit there without having to do that much work there's a couple of concerns here unbreakable formation was originally printed in ravnica allegiance as a rare um it never got higher than three dollars and I think that's a limiting factor here. If people, if people don't think of a card, if there's no price memory of it being a $10 or $20 card, even the most premium version may have trouble getting there. The inventory is looking okay on TCG Player, but hasn't really hollowed out. It's also worth taking a look at the, the velocity of the non-foils. If we look at the sales history, you know, you're only getting a copy sold every few days or so, sometimes two copies, but then you skip a, couple, a day or two. And so it could take a little while to hollow out. So I think I, I think I think your price point in the say the six to ten dollar range for a double up plus is viable, but I'm not sure how long it's going to take to get there. There's also there is drag from the fact that they have reprinted this card multiple times because it keeps showing up in Commander decks. It was in Commander Legends related products, Battle for Baldur's Gate products. It was in the Zendikar Rising promo packs, and I don't. The one thing I'll say for it is now that it's been a secret layer borderless, that's probably the best it gets for some time because it, all the other printings seem to be, you know, regular printings of the original card in the same border that it was originally printed in. So I think it's a fine choice as something to snap off as your copy of Unbreakable Formation, especially if you don't like foils. Um, I'm not sure I'm confident in it as a spec on a short enough timeline. Well, I mean, it's not like I'm looking at it turning around in three months. You're you're definitely on a slightly longer time frame than that. You know, I have six to twelve written down on the spreadsheet. Um, yeah, I mean, I looked at the TCG player sales data too. I was I was seeing you know one one to two a day on average of probably a little over one a day. I mean, you're there's there's a couple days here at the top where you miss, and then there's like it looks like ten or more or yeah, there's like four or five sold on the on one day and then four or five sold another day. So it's averaging out. Okay. Um, I, I, your, your point about the price memory is probably not unfair. I, I guess it's, it's a type of thing where I think people will always be able to buy a very cheap version of this card, but it's probably not a card you're buying like eight copies of, which in this case is fine because if you're coming to buy one copy and you can get a copy for a dollar, 35 cents, whatever, but like you can get this for six, like you don't have to buy eight of them. We're not talking about soul rings. So it's like, yeah, I'll buy like the one cool one because I only need one. I'm not trying to buy multiple, but uh, I mean, there's other cards that have a ton of variations that are all boring and cheap. And then one good expensive one. I think there's, precedence for that but i mean I, I am glad that we have some at the very least uh differing perspectives i'm always glad when there's uh alternatives for people to consider and, and weigh weigh the analysis for themselves all right so why does everybody like this party time deck out of the commander legends battle for Baldur's gate releases that came out alongside the set 
It's mostly about two cards. There's Deep Gnome, Terramancer, and Black Market Connections, both of which are showing strong stats on EDH Rec, both of which are currently in the mid-teens, which makes up, you know, 20 to $30 worth of value just on its own. Then you've also got reprints for Skull Clamp, Savine's Reclamation, Mutavolt, and War Room, and all of that adds up to a deck that is probably going to be uh, in pretty solid position to gain ground as time goes on. On Amazon right now, you can pre-order them for future delivery on some future wave in August for 35 bucks. And the odds that this deck is going to go 35 to say 60 in the next year seem very, very good. And then the last one I have is the Old Border Foil Soul Rings that are currently available at your LGS if you spend 50 bucks or more on sealed product. A, that's just a good deal. You should go do that. Support your local LGS. Get yourself one of these Soul Rings. B, last summer they did, they did similar things, right? There was a Fabled Passage Foil, Old Border Foil that started out around 10 bucks or so and has pre- done pretty much nothing but fall. Got down to 450. Currently it's back up a dollar to 550 or so. There's still 103 listings of those pockets of, you know, vendors with 40 copies, 25 copies, etc. Now, Soul Ring is not Fabled Passage. Fabled Passage is popular but it's not the number one card in EDH like Soul Ring is. And as a result, these Soul Rings are currently at just 29 listings. They just came out, mind you. And there is still some inventory to trickle into the market for sure from people getting them from their LGS. But I also think that one of the things that's going to go on here is these are going to come into buy lists very infrequently. I mean, I find it a little jarring that they used the modern art for Soul Ring with the old border frame, I think it would have been much sexier if they could have done retro-looking art for this. But it's still an old border foil soul ring. And for some portion of the market, that will matter. Clearly it does, because they're selling like hotcakes. I think if we look at the sales history for these, just today we sold 15 copies or so in that $16, $17 price range. There are some vendors that have 14 seven eight ten you know these are stores that didn't give them away to their players like they were supposed to they're just selling them on tcg player direct but something tells me that these are going to go say 17 to 35 in the next year because again it's not fabled passage do you think they lost the rights to the mark teden art i think yeah as i understand it there are troubles with trying to reuse art from the alpha beta period because that, I mean, that artwork was used on a bunch of copies, up, but it was on Revise. I think Revise was the last time it was used. Yeah. I, I don't know what the exact um, legalities are around that, but I suspect that there are legal issues that played into that choice. Because I think one of the issues now is that the original art contracts didn't have digital asset rights associated yeah. with them, and you would need that these days, so then you're renegotiating, and as soon as you're renegotiating, like... <laughs> the artist is favored in that negotiation given that they know you want to use it. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And I, the, the modern artwork that they've used in like every version of these is like, whatever, it's fine. It's not great, especially for a cart. Like the guy who got this commission read soul ring and didn't think of soul as meaning sun. (laughs) Cause there's no, like 
there's no sun, no brightness aspect in the artwork. It's, it's there sort dark. of is in the, in the middle. It's I mean, supposed to be the same that like magical brightness, but I, you know, not my favorite interpretation. But it's it's purple, right? Yeah, like it's you know, whatever. It's fine. Like can contrast it with like the Kaladesh version, which is also a modern design, but really brings that like yellowish energy to the card in any case i mean this would be my this would be my personal favorite version of the card for sure because i'm a sucker for old border foils i am however what uh as i have discussed in the past with times probably remastered and what have you i think that we've seen that there's less demand for that treatment than we may have initially anticipated um but i do think they're very cool my i when i saw this pop up on twitter i asked in discord about where they were coming from and saw that it was that love your LGS thing. I I would assume there's a pretty solid inventory of these out there if they sent them to pretty much all the stores. Um, I mean, maybe Fabled Passage is the counterfactual there and shows that like even was it the, was it the same program with, with very similar. With... There's probably as many I would guess. Yeah. So I mean, in a Fabled Passage, it looks good. Then I think that that. Um, certainly makes this a lot easier well no fable passage doesn't didn't look good fable passage dropped from nine and a half down to five and a half over the course of the year so start yeah okay you know it slid down the 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 hill which is why i said this is another debatable discussion where is soul ring enough better than fabled passage given it's the number one card in edh to overcome what happened to fabled passage Okay, I, I guess I misunderstood. I'm looking at the price graph now. Yeah, that's... Whew, okay, so what am I actually interested in? There's 158 vendors for the Fable Passage one. Uh, 100, 100 near Mint. What are these inventories looking like? Oh, that guy's got 40, 10, 13. So I think that the Soul Ring is probably a buy, but I don't know if I'm buying this early because didn't they just start this promo like a week ago? Yeah, it's not, it's not going to go on for a long time. The bulk of the inventory has already hit the market in the sense that it's being handed out. But how much of it's going to trickle back in to fill in any gaps and counter any upward price movement is 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 the discussion. And I think it all boils down to how many players that get these are looking to keep them versus flip them to justify, to rationalize that they got the sealed product they bought on site for less. Yeah, I mean, I have to imagine with a card like this that's given away with spending 50 bucks at your LGS, a likely trajectory for this card, for an individual copy of this card, is somebody goes into their store, spends the 50 bucks, gets the soul ring and puts it in their binder and goes home. They do not put it on TCG player. They do go to a magic event sometime in the next six months and sell it to a vendor. So, because now it's, you know, it's whatever price point it is, they may or may not have been using it, but if they didn't put it in their deck and they just stuck the promo in their binder, uh, then they get to sell it and, and get some money back. That would be my, what I would anticipate being the, a pretty common passage of that and stores just pocketing all of them and selling them online. Um, so I... I have to imagine that even though like mo- they're basically all out in the wild right now, there's probably going to be a reasonable return of these back to stores and vendors via like the GP and local and Star City circuit for the next several months. But that's is that enough? I I don't know. But that's a lot of fabled passages on the market. Uh, 
I think that there is a possibility this card does pretty decently and ends up at like the $25 to $30 range. But I have I, I suspect the floor is below where we are today. I think that's where I land on this. Volus Citadel Old Border Foils, another one that I've thrown out at people as a collector's corner pick in the last six months because they're gorgeous. You should absolutely own one at 250 or whatever they are right now. But it's another example like the Fabled Passage of something that came out last year and is an odd, like you, you're going to want to own at least one copy for EDH for sure. And yet they're not going anywhere because there's enough of them around that the, the price was, was largely downhill. And if you look at the one year on that, they started up near $13 and now are at under three. So on that basis, it, it really does come down to, do you think Soul Ring is popular enough in EDH to escape that velocity? That gravity. Yeah, I think I really like the old border foil, but I still I I think you have to wait here because my personal feelings aside, these old border foils are not crushing it. They are not being an old border foil does not guarantee a great price point. True. The time spiral remastered foils. Some of them did very, very well. Others languished. Yeah. And and more to the point, they put out three to four great versions of soul rig a year yeah it's a, it's yeah. a fr- frequent secret layer reprint so uh so I, I i i'm not i'm gonna put my confidence on the soul ring at the price point that i chose it at a seven which is a u- unusual number for a soul ring premium but i think given what has happened with other wpm promos in the last year you have to at least consider what travis is saying about waiting and hoping for a lower price point the counter to that is this one is hollowing out very quickly on tcg player and so the question is is it going to get pushed up to a 30 dollars plateau before inventory fills in to knock it back down and i can't guarantee you which direction that's going to head as of yet all right mm-hmm. so let's move on to the pro trader selection of the week we've got pro trader rayx throwing out displacer kitten which is really a card that many pro traders have discussed and have money in on uh, because it's a 4,000 EDH rack so far out of Commander Legends 2, 5% of all blue decks since release. See some legacy play too. There's been legacy decks running it as a four of uh, for a four mana blink creature, uh, which certainly ranks up there with Unlicensed Hearse and Ledger Shredder as being surprising to me. Um, not that it would be great in EDH, because that's obvious, but that legacy would find a home for it. Uh, Rayx is claiming, you know, calling this to go from ten to twenty dollars over the next year, and the catch is that there is plenty of inventory of this card still lying around at present. There's like ninety-five listings of the regulars. One card rush has forty-eight copies at eleven dollars that need to get chipped away, etc. And folks will be opening. This one does come out of the main set. Rayx is saying ten to twenty. I think given that it is, has broad applications for. Legacy and EDH, and has solid EDH numbers. I think this pick is is likely to succeed. The just regular copies, ten bucks, pretty solid. I mean, five percent of blue decks is decent. And we're just talking about the regular copies here. This card's expensive. Why is this card? So Archivist much money? of Ogma is in the same boat, but it's fifteen dollars, right? And it doesn't doesn't see legacy play. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I mean, maybe the inventory on these is tighter than uh, than I know than I know, because I wouldn't think this would ten bucks seems a little steep for this. But if that's the price point it's at, then clearly there's a reason for it. Doing something. 
It's been targeted pretty heavily recently. It's unclear to me whether this will slide further. There might be an even better entry point uh, a little further down the road. If we look at the price, it started pretty high around $18, slid all the way down to 12 and a half, and has since bounced off of that and is, uh, no, sorry, got down to about nine, and since has bounced off of that and is sitting around 11. So I think you could get an entry somewhere in the eight to $11 range uh, later this summer as, again, more and more eyes turn towards other products and away from the Battle for Baldur's Gate stuff. It's also unclear how much legacy really drives things these days, what with COVID still in the mix and not everybody playing at their local LGS and legacy already being you know, a fringe format in the grand scheme of things. All right, so our weekly topic of the week is planning your retreat, how to handle your time away from MTG. And what we mean by this is that especially for those of us that have been in the game, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years plus for, for me at this point, um, you you go through, tend to go through, as you do with almost any hobby that, you know, is a lifelong hobby, you're going to go through ebbs and, and flows where you are closer or further away from your hobby of choice. Uh, I spent a few years painting miniatures, then got very, very tired of that process and took a big, huge step away. I've been in and out of the parkour, parkour community in Toronto for many years, played Ultimate Frisbee for a long time, um, you know, do various water sports uh, in sporadic bursts. Huh. And, you know, in my gaming life, I've certainly spent, I think during the Lorwyn period, which was a lull for a lot of people, I was buying... For all of Magic. Yeah, I was, I was buying a lot less Magic, just like a lot of people were. Um, and that represented two or three years where every once in a while I would buy a booster box for funsies, but I wasn't really going to my LGS, wasn't playing in any tournaments at the time, and then later came back to the game. Now, when you're in MTG Finance and you decide to take a step back, as you know Travis has done recently with increased work duties and multiple children in the house, you're in a bit of a unique situation because it's not as casual of a decision. You've got money tied up in the game i would i don't know exactly what travis's collection is worth but let's say that it's six figures certainly and you know we just wanted to have a chat through given that travis has you know been making has been navigating these waters a little bit as to you know what steps he has taken or or not taken but maybe should have to help protect his investment for future yeah so i I think my last episode, regular episode, was sometime back in March, I think. Because, yeah, it was late March that I went back to work full-time, and, and that was right very close to when I wrapped it up. So it's been probably just about three-ish months that I have uh, have been away. And I would say the number one thing that you're going to want to have if you kind of feel yourself drifting away is I'm going to say a plan, but really it's to tie up all of your loose ends. So what do I mean by that? Uh, I don't doubt for a second that basically everyone listening to this has a stack of cards, many stacks of cards on many desks. They have piles of cards that haven't been organized. Um, Some of you are better about this than others. But you you kind of live in your magic cards, right? It's this sort of organic 
beast that changes as you as, as you acquire and sell cards but there's definitely uh it's all there's always cards around you but when you start when you really take a step back and you're like i don't i'm not really like keeping up with this anymore but i can't i can't just leave everything here and walk away from it completely because you're leaving a ton of money on the table especially with the way they handle reprints now um you don't want to double masters really actually caught me on a couple cards which was a which is a bummer um the 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 floor dropped out on some stuff that i hadn't sold through uh because i wasn't aggressive enough with them so you need to make sure that you're not leaving yourself in a position where you just have a huge amount of equity that you have let dust because you didn't have it organized and inventoried and priced and kind of cleaned up uh, because a card sitting on your desk that you've been meaning to price for three months but haven't gotten around to putting up or whatever like it's just it just doesn't it just doesn't exist and if you weren't doing that when you were really in the thick of things you're definitely not going to do it when you're not really paying attention to magic um and like I said, some of you are better about organization and being on top of this stuff than others, but I've never been great at it. So when I was on paternity leave, I actually spent quite a few hours trying to get everything tagged, put away. And uh, my personal system, and this is something the Discord likes to laugh about, was listing, price, listing every card for sale on TCG Player. But I didn't list them at prices. At current prices, I kind of listed them like where I wanted them to be. Um, but it was important to me to make sure that every card I had was listed for sale. Because if I didn't do that, I was absolutely going to forget that they existed and then never look at them again. Um, because I just, I, I'm, I'm the type, I personally am the type of person that when I walk away from something, I usually end up with a pretty strong disconnect. It's very hard for me to maintain a focus and an interest in something as kind as a long tail um, and anyone else who is sort of um, an addictive personality, I'm sure, is definitely familiar with that, where you probably pick stuff up really hot and you drop it really hot. But there's way too much money in this to drop it like it that's that hot, but you can't force yourself to be interested. So my technique personally was putting the time and effort into making sure every single card I had was organized and listed for sale so that nothing fell through the cracks. Um, now that does mean that that some of those prices are optimistic and if the price if the trajectory doesn't get there in time you know if it doesn't if it doesn't if it never gets that expensive then the card has just sat and done nothing and i'm kind of accepting that as a possibility like i i have enough magic cards in this house that uh you know if my sales continued at this rate i would have magic cards until the day i died um so I know that I will never sell through everything unless I just take it to a GP and just dump it on somebody. But it does allow me to set myself up for future sales and inventory movement that will still be profitable, uh, but doesn't just completely like, I don't have cards that just fall into the existence, cease existing, fall into the abyss and cease existing. So that's my main takeaway is like, if you feel yourself getting away from it, try and make sure you take care, get everything listed and figure out what you're doing with it. So that when you do stop paying attention, it sort of manages itself. Yeah, I've got a few takeaways from that, from that uh, thought process. One is the get organized. Always a good idea. But if you find yourself fading, but you've made that you're pretty sure you'll be back, but for whatever reason, increased work responsibility, you're starting a family, 
maybe you're moving somewhere for a couple of years for work and then you're going to be back or you're downsizing your home and you're going to be traveling a lot and you know you're not going to be hands-on with your cards um but you're pretty sure it's not final it's temporary then getting organized sooner rather than later <laughs> is a huge boon because nobody truly quits yeah, magic that's that's that, it's very it's very common for people to return regardless of what the reason was it's a good enough it's a good enough game a good enough hobby that it, if it hooked you once it'll probably hook you again you know they'll you, you love star wars and they make a star wars set at some point that you'll be back so getting organized for a to optimize your storage process to ensure there's no theft during storage if you're storing off-site for some reason um and to make ease your on-ramp when you come back i think is a big deal and there are a variety of ways to do it you can you know i think four and five row boxes are 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 a solid starting point there are other ways but i think that's one of the better ones um making use of penny sleeves and or top loaders and in my case i have always championed putting price tags date date you bought something i just put month and year i don't worry about this specific day april 22 i bought i bought 10 copies of this for seven bucks and they're all sitting in this this top loader uh and i alphabetize by color so i have artifacts the five colors multicolor and lands and and i split up like that i don't organize by set because i don't think that's particularly useful unless your end game is that you're eventually going to buy list by set in which case that would be super useful because when you're buy listing to somebody you've got to organize the cards to send in alphabetically by set so or or organizing by set made a lot more sense about five years ago i I, that just seems like near if you're a store now. or you're heavily into buy listing as your exit then that's still useful if you're more about organizing your collection i i think that my method is is better because i have one closet that like one arm uh floor closet that has current inventory and it's organized as i outlined alphabetized by type and then i have five rows to hold specs for each of those types and they move from the spec box to the for sale box and then i've got a much smaller personal collection of cards i'm using to, to build for modern or edh or whatever and that's also organized the same way things can cycle through those various locations but if i ever had to put this all in storage it would you know fit in a decent sized closet on site off site whatever and it wouldn't take too long to get it organized and it's all labeled i, I label all my boxes um, and I've got tape on hand so that, you know, like blue packing tape or whatever, you can lock down a five row pretty easily and, and, and put it in a, in a good position. Now, the, the amount of inventory, sorry, just the amount of inventory you would have to have, I feel like in order to get to the point where you're organizing by set is like, is, is more than many stores would have. <laughs> like, cause I mean, I have no shortage of magic cards, but like, there's no, I've never even considered It's that. like a Douglas Johnson scenario right where you you've, yes. you've, take, you've yeah. taken that's on a, that's you've taken on tons of, of collections and you've got a, a lot of bulk flowing through your operation yeah. and and you you need and and you bu- and you buy list a lot um so th- that that's certainly Anyways. a great takeaway another one is the have an exit plan understand before you get tired of the game what you think you will do in the i'm quitting scenario and the i'm temporarily retiring scenario 
because you know your game plan of how you know your primary sales outlet is tcg player and so your plan get your exit plan was keep things listed on there uh and keep up to date on that so that it keeps generating income even when you're not paying attention. So even though I would guess, and I don't know the exact specifics of it, but my impression having talked to you over the last year or two is that you're buying less, you're researching less, um, but you're still selling because you have all this inventory from the last 10 years built up and it's all listed. So you're still forced to ship cards all the time, right? Yep. I have, I mean, my, my purchases have basically grown to a halt. I don't remember the last time I bought. It would have been probably close to the end of the recording. Sure period um and i'm and there are points that come up like very rarely where i consider buying but i have enough inventory that i'm not trying to make things more complicated for myself so i'm just happy to just leave it alone so yes no incoming cards at this time but still a reasonably regular amount of sales yeah so it's funny because I could tell that there was a, a dragon set that got popular because suddenly I had several things sell that I wasn't expecting to sell yet because the prices were too high. So one of, one of the things that is interesting is the difference between whether your primary mm-hmm. sales outlet is TCG player or, say, eBay or, say, social media. On social media, you know, you put up a Facebook post, oh it's going to fade within a few hours or days. So you're not going to have to worry yeah. about it too much. Like You might get follow-up questions weeks later. And maybe you're out of the country for work or whatever, and you'll have to just brush them off or ignore them. But you won't have to think about it too much. Um, you might have some relationships that will degrade or fade. And it might be a good idea to put together a contact sheet so that you can you know, reach out to people in the future if you need to. Um, especially if there have been people that have been good clients that have regularly bought from you. So like, for instance, for sealed product that I get through uh, MTG Price, ProTrader, Group Buys through our you know, our, our massive group buy program. Um, I have some local clients that are reliably spending thousands of dollars per year with me. So if I needed to take a break for six months or two years or whatever, we had more kids, job responsibilities, whatever, I would certainly want to at least get them into a contact book so that even if I can't service them during my absence, I would be able to reach back out to them and have, act, you know, maybe still be able to activate some of that network when the time came. Now, if you're on eBay, it's a little different because up to a certain number of listings, those listings are free. But beyond, I think it's 300 listings for most people, maybe it's 400. Um, Your listings start costing you a small number of cents per month, like 10 cents per listing per month or whatever. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but it adds up. If you have a thousand listings like I do and you just let your whole account go fallow, fallow, the... (laughs) <laughs> you're going to, you know, you could have 70 bucks a month just in listing fees that are just getting charged like clockwork for ages. And one of the things you can do to mitigate that is that if you're operating as a business anyway, then you should probably consider upcharging yourself to have a business eBay account because those accounts can be turned on and off if you're on vacation and so forth. Whereas I run a personal ebay account it's still declared as business income but the account when i originally set it up many years ago was a personal account and it's difficult to switch off that without hassles so when i go on vacation i have to take cards with me like when i was going around the u.s i had a third of my active inventory with us in the car so the inventory that was in the car (laughs) was worth more than the car (laughs) 
And there's no insurance that's going to cover you in that scenario if you get broken into. So every day when every day when we pack that car, that that long box was down (laughs) at the very bottom of the back seat with 10 things on top of it. So that even if somebody smashed a window and grabbed like a backpack off the top, we always made sure that the least expensive thing was at the top. Um, Even if the bag it was in looked the fanciest, which is a, a clever ploy for traveling just in general. Um, and that actually worked out for me because I've done this before and I've got it pretty dialed where I can kind of estimate which of my inventory is most likely to sell during a given sales period. And so for instance, I had all my old gnaw bones with me because dragons are hot right now and that card was already selling well. Um, and I had a bunch of other dragon related cards and I had some high velocity cards, like some masterpieces that do well for me or some foil extended arts that do well. And... About I had somebody here that would cover come to the house and, and drop off whatever sales I needed and I set them up with a nice sales station that had, you know, pre-labeled in envelopes and everything ready to go for them in case they had to pack something so it would be a relatively quick process. And it turned out that I was right seventy five percent of the time or so. Like about they only had to ship twenty five percent of my sales while I was gone, which w- wasn't a tremendous amount because summer months are a little slower anyway. Um so it, it, it's good to understand uh, your scenario vis-a-vis eBay. eBay can be a very good place to sell stuff, especially foreign cards do better there than they do on TCG Player, for instance. Um, but you got to think when you're setting up the account whether you're going to need the business-level features, which can also include you know inv- other inventory management tools that can be quite handy in terms of uh, search and replace, you know, find, taking down uh, a bunch of blue cards or price. Uh, you can set up um databases to compare prices and update your prices automatically so there's all that stuff to think about um having an exit plan is just is just a good idea like you want to be organized to the extent that the exit plan is easy easy to execute on and so those two things are kind of like intertwined um and then the other thing that jumped out at me that you said was the the concept of kind of having having a sense of whether it's final or not um because if you think you're going to be back you you want to you might want to consider doing things differently than if you know you're gone if you're gone it's like you said you just you show up at a, a gp or the biggest store in your area and you can just you know bring a well-prepared spreadsheet organized by most expensive cards first pretty much assume that they're going to ignore anything under $5 and just discount it to zero and everything else. You're probably going to get somewhere between 55 and 70% on depending on who you're dealing with and what you're putting on the table. And you could just get out of your whole collection in a day. You know, you send them a spreadsheet ahead of time. If it's big enough, you can bat it around to a few different stores in the region and maybe you're going to drive two hours to go drop it off to the best offer or something like that. Uh, The last time I unloaded a big collection, I ended up flying all the way to California to offload it for like 25 grand so that can certainly be done with some legwork but if you think you're going to be back one of the things you might look at especially if you had a smaller to mid-sized collection and especially if you're more of a collector than a speculator per se and you actually have um pretty easily inventoried items in the sense that maybe you have $50,000 collection, but it's in 50 cards or something. Like you've got, if you're more on the collector side, you don't really have decks or play or whatever. You might just have some power 
that you acquired early on in your career as a Magic player that you've taken care of, and it's sitting around. Or maybe you've got a modern collection, but the whole modern collection fits in a three-row or something. In that case, you might want to consider trading it. Because if you can establish a value for it, you could maybe, you know, say you're a pro trader, you could trade it to another pro trader for a piece of power or something and consolidate your collection. You're like, I'm out of modern. I don't see myself coming back anytime soon. I think if I ever got back into magic, maybe I would try EDH. So I know I'm never going to need the modern cards again. And who knows how many times they'll be reprinted while I'm gone. So I'm just going to take this three row, add it all up on TCG player. That says it's an $8,000 box. You know, maybe somebody will give you $6,000 worth of a mox. And then you've just got one card to put in the safe or at a safety deposit box at your bank. And you can go off to do whatever it is you're doing in life. And when you get back, you've got a blue chip, single item, easy to track. You can get it on your, your home insurance relatively easily as a singular item um, that you could then trade back into an EDH deck or five EDH decks or a bunch of boxes of the new set that you that brought you back to the game or whatever. Yeah, I uh, I have a couple thoughts here. One is that uh, I you know I'm talking about this as someone who does sell virtually exclusively on TCG Player, which gives you the option to just turn your inventory on and off. Um, which my God, uh, having to do what you did with eBay and traveling just sounds like an absolute. But the funny thing for me is that it's uh, actually cheaper shipping, right? Because a lot of my business. A lot of the time I'm shipping from Canada to the U.S. anyway. So there was a guy like I had just passed Portland, Oregon. We were like four hours south and a guy ordered a card from Portland. And I'm like, no problem. During breakfast the next morning, pull out the pre-labeled envelope, fill out his information on the front, throw the card in there, slap the tape on, drop it in the mailbox. Away I go. And the guy got it like two days later (laughs) instead of 10 days later. Yeah, yeah. I. Yeah, yeah. It's funny you say that because for you, that's like, wow, this is so quick. But like, I don't know, in the U.S., it just everything's relatively quick. I've actually sold the people in my town. Like if I had been, if I'd cared, I could have gotten up and driven it to their house. Um, this happened a couple times. But yeah, the, the platform you sell on is a, definitely changes. If you sell primarily on eBay, I don't know what your answer would be for how to deal with this because it seems like keep trying to keep up with that is going to be much more difficult. Um, because you can't just set it and forget it the way you can with TCG player. Same with Facebook. I mean, with Facebook, it's, I, if that's your primary sales, then you're going to have to find a better strategy because you're not going to be able to keep up with it, um, without a, a minimum amount of effort. That's much higher than I'm managing with like TCG player. Uh, <clears throat> you know, the concept of organization is definitely important. I, I, I've never been very organized. I know you've always had a better organization than I have. It's just, uh, my system has always like worked for the most part, but like, I, I assume most people, a lot of people have, um, similar ideas. And, and this is, this is part of it is I had an organization system, but it usually involved a lot of piles and I knew what each pile was, but they were unmarked and, 
uh, you know, if I went months without really touching stuff or I was being lazy, I could start to lose track of what pile was what. But I was generally able to keep track of like five, six, seven different piles of cards and what they were. Oh, these are listed and I haven't put them away. These are unlisted. These are specs, like that type of thing. And I could kind of keep it all managed. But part when I was really trying to consolidate, I'm like, okay, I have to get rid of all of this because if I come back to this in five months, type of thing, right? Like if I don't really touch any of this that much other than to sell some cards here and there that sell on TCG Player, I'm absolutely going to lose track of what all of this is. And God forbid I have to move any of it, right? Like I have my magic cards in one place, but what if I need them to move them to another part of the house or into another piece of furniture or that type of thing? It's like, I'm going to have no idea what any of this is. And and trying to make sense of it and get it all straightened out is time consuming, um, especially if you don't remember where you left off. So that's really what I'm talking about trying to clean, clean up a little bit and consolidate. That's a big part of it is making sure that if you walk away and don't touch your cards for a month, can you walk back and know what you're looking at? Because if the answer is, you you can think you have a good idea of it and, and remember, but like that's a hard thing to keep track of. And if you're walking away from the game because you're busy with other stuff, like that's the type of thing that really degrades your memory and your ability to keep track yeah, of all that. that so that's where, the, that's where the preparation organization really plays in. Now, one of the other... Yeah, I, 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 ha- I had to make sure that I could walk away and have no... Basically everything, every card falls into one of like three categories because it's the only way I'd be able to make any sense of it down the road. Yeah. Now, one of the other scenarios I think is worth discussing is the getting busy. You're not intentionally leaving the game. It's not a declared thing, but you've got increased work responsibilities or your family, you know, has you hopping or... You know, for whatever else, maybe some other hobby is infringing. You know, you really get into tennis and in the summer you don't touch your magic cards much. And I see pro traders kind of, you know, phase in and out. You know, there's people that have been with us for years, but they're not ever present. You know, we, we definitely have a daily crowd that is commenting absolutely every day. And then we also we have hundreds more people that come and they go, depending on what's going on in their life. And I think one of those key strategies for those people is to simplify you don't, you're not talking about your exit strategy. You're talking about what do you do when you've got one hour to spend on it per week, not 10, um, by choice or by circumstance. And I think one of the simplest, the, the easiest ways to simplify is that if you are the kind of person who, for most of your magic career, has bought sealed product and cracked it like, you know, fooling around with it like a lottery ticket, as so many of us do, where you're gonna you know you're gonna buy a collector booster box of Double Masters 2022, and you're gonna go looking for textured foils, hoping to flip them for hundreds of dollars. Just don't open the box, dude. Like if in our group buy, people had access to about two hundred dollars a box on the collector booster boxes, and the cheapest price from gaming company on TCG Player right now during pre-sales is two sixty six. So per case of eight, there's an opportunity there to make $400 without even opening the product. And if you want to get a little taste, you know, you got you to get a little sugar in your system, then go ahead, open one of the CBs and flip the rest. Instead of cracking all the CBs and then slowly selling those cards over some long period of time. You know, just do do the kinds that of things would, that will allow you to operate on an hour instead of 10 hours. 
that was a big change for me, even when just the way that I engaged with it shifted. Um, because back when I played very regularly, like I was at FNM basically every week, I went to like my stores modern basically every week. Like I was at the card store probably a minimum of two days a week. Um, and was relatively, and I was playing, that was when I was getting EDH too. So I was really playing a lot of magic. I had like a bunch of different boxes. And at one point I did have it organized by set when I was like drafting pretty regularly in person. And I was generating a lot of commons and uncommons types of type of thing. Um, and then the as I started to, to drift away from that, and like I wasn't drafting as much. I basically had to take several boxes that were commons and uncommons, and I don't remember what I did with them. I think I gave them away, but like so, change the face of the collection to be like, okay, now I just have my spec box and my sale box, and like a box of modern staples for personal use. And I got rid of like all of the other types of cards because they were just sitting around taking up space. I wasn't using them. I wasn't updating them, and like just just they were doing nothing for me and I had to, to reduce that. And that, and that got even more severe. Um, recently when I kind of stepped back from the cast too, it was like, okay, I have to, I have to pare this down again. And in fact, at one point back when Theros beyond death came out, I bought one of the collector's booster boxes. Um, or I think it was a case or something like that. I don't remember what it was, but I cracked it all. And I think it was like for two years, I had Theros Beyond Death cards sitting around because I'm like, oh, what the hell am I supposed to do with these? Like, just like this pile of like foil commons and uncommons, like cards that like didn't really sell, weren't really worth selling. But I'm like, I don't want to get rid of, like, I don't want to just throw them in the trash. But like, what else am I supposed to do with these? Like, I no longer have a place to house these. I don't have the storage for just bulk commons and uncommons. The only thing I have left is like a spec box and a sale box. <laughs> Uh, and I don't, I, I'm going to tell you, I'm pretty sure I just recycled them because I'm like, I, I don't, there's not that much money in here. I don't care anymore. Um, so try and like reduce the number of these types of cards that are in your house, because that's another way that you find it just becomes unmanageable when you're no longer able to, uh, to apply the amount of time to it that you use. Well, one of the other ways you can simplify is to exit your collection but only to the extent of getting, and this is true, especially if you've been in the game a long time and you have, you know, you've regularly bought sealed product over the years or you've drafted a lot or some combination of the two and you've got what Travis describes, the piles all over the house, which is probably infringe, like affecting your relationship. I know it has mine. There have been times where I'm like, I get a major <laughs> order of specs in from Europe or Japan and it dominates our living room for a couple of weeks. And my wife is just, shaking her head every time she walks by and she's annoyed when she has to sit down next to it on the couch and whatever so if you're so far down that path that it's not that you're looking to exit the game but you feel like you're drowning in your own collection um because of some lack of organization and or your longevity in the game one thing you can consider is just pick go through your collect give yourself like half a day in that half a day, you are allowed to extract whatever brings you joy. The cards you love, the miniature collections, you know, you like dragons and you've got a binder full of dragon cards for no reason other than you like dragons. You got five EDH decks you really care about and one modern deck. Put all that shit off to the side. That's your keepers. Everything else, go ahead and buy list it. Send it to CK, take it down to a, a Magic Fest, unload it, get some cash, 
go buy your partner something nice, buy your kids something sweet, and buy yourself something, and then decide what to do next. You know, simplify. Sometimes you just got to clean the house. Yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan of just remember that the the space and the mental capital and the time all comes with a cost and you shouldn't be afraid to give up ev if it means getting to get rid of all of that so like i can turn around here and i see i still have boxes from old commander product and i think those have entire commander decks in them from like you know commander 2015 and that type of thing and several binders and some of those spell book containers and a box of dice and god knows how many edh decks and assorted containers and it's like i still have that stuff but it's consolidated and i will tell you that if i move it's not all coming with me uh it's fine where it is because i have no i don't need the space back at the moment but their days are numbered and uh like i really have to get rid of all this extra stuff because that's where you, just, just just get rid of it. Like who cares? Like just give it to somebody else. Bring it into your store and give it to some kid or whatever. Like unless it's worth hundreds or thousands of dollars. Like it's just it's just it's just gonna be better off for you uh, if you're able to cut to get what you can out of it now and really narrow your focus or what you have left to deal with to very specific things. Because you will lose everything else on the margins, everything on the edges, all the extra stuff. You'll lose the time, you'll lose the attention, and it's just going to end up like in the recycling bin because when you finally get back around to it, you're not going to care anymore. Now, one of the things we've talked about in the past that I think will help you get out ahead of things, this is like that long-range preparatory game that is alongside being organized with how you track and label your collection and how you store it, is a simplification of your acquisition process you know we've talked about not going with a shotgun approach where you feel the need to you know in our discord there are 20 30 40 50 solid like discuss debatable ideas per day that are tabled that might make you money you don't need to run out and grab some of all of that in fact on the contrary you should set the narrowest filter you feel comfortable with one-third, one-quarter, one-tenth, even one out of every hundred specs mentioned is not crazy, and ignore everything else. You know, if you really believe in the party time deck, just go ahead and order 20 of those off Amazon and then call that your summer spec game and kick back and go enjoy your summer. You, you don't need to be yeah. jumping in on every last spec. We've talked lots about how being original... Finding a spec on the fringes is not nearly as valuable as figuring out what the next masterpiece soul ring is and going deep, right? So you can simplify your whole experience at MTG Finance. And, and, and in doing so, even during the period where you are fully engaged with the game, increase the ratio of fun time, which usually means social slash play time, or for some people, collecting slash building time. Like, I think I'm definitely 50-50 on EDH. Like, I get as much out of building the deck as I do playing it. Easy. Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably and, common for Right, a lot and of I think people. that's why that, that format does so well, is that it actually is the best way to uh, engage with the hobby as with a goldfish mode and a social mode. Whereas competitive... Right, as I say, you can... You can you can do that alone at home in your office and it's still yep. pretty fun. 
because you're not playing, you're just building and thinking about it. And like, that's half yeah. the enjoyment. And, and especially because they do a pretty good job of, you know, generic churning out niche commanders that make the build mm-hmm. process different. Like the way you're going to build Edgar Markov is completely different than the way you're going to build Aloro, which is completely different than the way you're going to build Korobold. And yeah, Soul Rings and all of those decks. And there's definitely a thing going on about how like how many cards are auto-includes in Commander and whatever. But the bottom line is you, you still have 30, 40, 50 cards worth of creativity, especially if you're detuning your decks and, and not trying to CDH everything. So yeah, they... I think that narrowing your acquisition process, uh, both for your collection and, and for your spec box, is just a good idea that will pay off when you eventually want to exit and or step away from the game for some period of time. Yeah, and I think that uh, I need to need to point out to people that you don't realize how fast your... Uh, how, how, your knowledge and your interest decays when you're not in this on an active basis. Like, I mean, episodes that we record two and three weeks ago are almost irrelevant. Like it just decays so quickly. Um, so it's, 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 it's very easy to be in a, feel like you're in a completely different world just three months later. Right. Um, and have no idea, especially with the way Wizards changes their release schedules and the products and all that. Like, I keep track of all this crap. Like, if you're a wine collector, you can buy bottles of wine, shove them in your your fridge, and then come back two years later. And there's probably not been that much of a change in the wine market at that point in time. Like, your expensive bottle is still an expensive bottle, but it is not the case in Magic. So, there's just so much churn of information and prices and, and things of that nature that it decays very rapidly. And you need to, to be aware of that so that you don't um you don't ruin what you have built up so far uh, and that's why i talk about consolidating and organizing because you need to set that up to to not get hammered by the fact that you just don't care to look it up yep, anymore the, the more of that stuff you do before you fade the better for sure all right yeah. um i think that's a pretty good overview on that topic uh, may as well call yeah. it a night. Where can uh, people about. find you online, Travis? I am still on Twitter at wizardbumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. Uh, how about yourself? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at mtgcritic, as well as via my occasional articles on mtgprice.com and my constant haunting of the ProTrader Discord. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com ProTrader service for just $9.99 a month or $109.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, low-cost group buys, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money. Playing Magic the Gathering, I should also point out to the people that have applied while I was on my vacation, I will be right with you shortly. <laughs> uh once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com and save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Uh, James, is Cliff Fistle off next week? Mm, i got to double check on that. I can't remember if he's on a two-weeker or a one-weeker, but uh, we might have Travis next week. We might have Cliff. It's, a big, it's always a surprise over here on Fast Finance. Everyone will be on the edge of their seat. (laughs) Anyway, good to have you back, brother. Thank you, Travis. And we'll see all of you next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.